Well, I'm sure all of you know that um, today we, oh, sorry, we opened up the instructions. We made several announcements that we were going to do so, uh, just so you wouldn't miss it. And um, when we did, of course, many of you were left, I think, somewhat confused. Uh, and that, that comes out in the group interviews and, and, and other times when we talk with you. So tonight I thought I would talk about sort of the Buddha's teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness and, and really uh, his description of what it means to uh, choiceless awareness. You know, you've been hearing from us and hopefully we sort of can reflect or uh, interpret his teachings. But I think that his discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness is really quite an extraordinarily comprehensive and practical application of what we mean by choiceless awareness, of what we mean by living in the present moment. The four foundations of mindfulness are the body, feelings, the mind, which means thoughts, emotions, moods, reactions. And the fourth is the law of experience, sort of the law of nature, seeing true, the true nature. And what we mean by foundations is really just ways of being in the present, ways of establishing presence within the mind. Mindfulness, of course, is that ability, that innate ability. And it's what I appreciate about this particular practice is that all we're doing here is cultivating our innate qualities. And we're really uncovering and nurturing those qualities. So everybody in this room has that capacity to be mindful. It's what it means to be a human being. And that is that capacity to pay attention in a very simple and direct way to what your experience is in the present moment very simple but very powerful quality. It's a form of intelligence. It allows us to see and know what our experience is from one moment to the next. It's not really an experience as much as a quality of awareness, of knowing. And so the first foundation, the ways of establishing mindfulness, ways of establishing presence, is the body, the body and its activities. And of course, that's what so much we have highlighted in this particular retreat, and, and, and it's, and it's a, an important part of what it means to do Vipassana practice. Uh, it's an important aspect of the method that we use, is we begin with the body. You know, we begin with the breathing. We begin with the posture. To me, the first foundation, that awareness of the first foundation and its use as a practical method of becoming present, to me, that really reflects at least one reflection of the genius of the Buddha. I mean, certainly his awakening is quite profound. And, you know, his awakening is really our awakening. We have that capacity, too, to wake up. But what he did was to really discover a way of gaining access to the present, he understood that gaining access to the present 
you know, given our conditioning, you know, we've been looking at our conditioning for the last four days, you know, our conditioning that always pushes us into the next moment or, or getting caught up in what's happened to us in the past or thinking about the future, you know, that preoccupation, that constant movement and chatter and inner dialogue in the mind and getting caught up in, again, in it over and over again, he realized that being in the present was a very difficult thing. And we needed a door. We needed a way to get into the present, to begin to establish some clarity on what is our actual experience right now. And so the Buddha started with the body, and we do too in this practice and in his teachings. What we find is that the body is such a wonderful resource. You know, I mean, it keeps us alive, but it's such a wonderful resource for cultivating awareness, for bringing us into the present. You know, as long as we're alive, we have our bodies. It's a really good place to start. And when we begin to enter into the present, you know, at the beginning, it takes a lot of effort to be mindful of the body. But as practice develops and grows, it becomes much more natural to begin to drop into the body, to become more aware of the body, to become more sensitive to what the body is doing to become more sensitive to our breathing. And it happens very naturally because as we wake up and as we begin to see clearly, we, of course, wake up to the reality of the body. You know, we begin to feel our, fear, feel our bodies. You know, we become aware of, our, uh, of the sensations in the body, how the body is acting, how it's responding to things. Every moment that we're mindful of the breath, every, every moment that we're being mindful of the breathing, what we're doing is strengthening our capacity to live in the present. We're strengthening our capacity to be in this present moment in a very direct way. Not in a conceptual or ideal way. Every moment that you come back to your breath, every moment that you see just even a flicker of the in-breath or a flicker of the out-breath. You're making a connection to what's real. You're making a connection to the present. The breathing can really provide a very useful anchor. The mind is very chaotic. And that's one of the, really one of the first insights that almost everybody has in practice. In fact, I don't think I've ever met anybody that didn't have this insight on their first retreat. Uh, it is insight meditation, and we do have insights, and sometimes we don't know it, uh, and sometimes we don't like those insights. Uh, and one insight we have is that our minds are really out of control. Yeah. We can say or tell or do whatever we want with our minds, but the mind generally does not really want to go along. You know? It doesn't really want to go along with our agenda. You know? We can have the best of intentions. We can be the most committed, committed practitioner on the face of the planet. And still, you know, the mind does not want to settle on the breathing. You know, it doesn't want to settle on the present moment. And so it takes a lot of patience. That's why we keep emphasizing patience, because it's a training to anchor the attention on the breathing. Obviously, it's a training. You know, it's a training. It's a hard training. What's wonderful about the breath, and really you could take this on really almost any experience, but I think the breathing is, is particularly apparent. 
which is it's not only a vehicle for concentration. In the last few days, we've been paying exclusive attention to the breath as a way of developing more sustained mindfulness, more concentration. But it's also a vehicle, a way of learning about ourselves, learning about the truth of our life. We begin to see, first of all, the changing nature of the breath. And when we begin to notice the changing nature of the breath, we're beginning to have insights. We're beginning to see things as they are. Because the breath is never static. Never for even one moment is it static. There are many, many, many moments within one in-breath. Many, many moments in the out-breath. In each one of those moments, it's in a process of change. So touching the breath is really, again, touching what's real. If we can touch it with mindfulness, with just that clear seeing and comprehension of exactly what's happening, so that's why it's so important and why we emphasize actually feeling the breath. You know, we want you to feel the sensation itself because when you feel it, you're contacting what's real. There are many contemplations that the Buddha talked about in working with the body. If you're interested, uh, you could read the discourse. You could uh, find out about all these different contemplations. I think there's nine of them. But one contemplation, one mindfulness of body practice that we're also highlighting, which is mindfulness of the four postures. The four postures, of course, are standing, sitting, lying, and walking. Those are the four postures. And mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of this first foundation means being fully attentive to the posture. It's really, it means basically living in and with your body wherever you go. So you're feeling very connected in a very direct way. Remember, when you're mindful of something, it's direct. There's nothing between you. It's that intimate quality that we keep talking about, that very direct connection. So when you're with just sitting, you're just feeling what sitting feels like. When you're walking, standing, lying down at night, you're with that experience in a very direct way. You're in the body, you're with the body. You're in the present. The second contemplation is kind of the one I'm pretty interested in these days. I'm teaching a class practice group back at CIMC on on this second foundation. And uh, I have a lot of enthusiasm about sort of investigating and looking at this particular foundation, and that's contemplation of feeling. Contemplation of feeling, it's the second foundation. And what the Buddha doesn't mean by feeling when he talks about feeling is, is, is an emotion or an, a view, like, I feel good. You know, I feel good, or I feel like you're giving me a hard time, um, something like that. <laughs> Okay. Uh, that's kind of a, a feeling, meaning emotion or view about what's happening, but that's not what he meant by feeling. What he meant by a feeling is the texture, the actual feeling quality that every experience has. Just think about that, the feeling quality. You know, one good example of that, something I've been watching, observing, 
last couple of days has been, of course, the pounding and the scraping uh, of, you know, the folks working on the windows. And, you know, once again, it, it is a sound, you know, just like the birds chirping tonight and wind blowing and rustling. And really the only difference between those birds chirping, you know, in, our, in terms of how we receive it, and the, and the pounding of the nails is that the pounding of the nails is definitely unpleasant. And the chirping of the birds, for me anyways, is very pleasant. So is the wind. And so when we begin to open to the feeling quality of the experience, you know, again, we're opening, we're opening a door you know, into experience. So beginning to notice the feeling quality of the experiences that you have, it's very interesting. And you can, look, you can look for those feelings through really when you start working with awareness of the sense doors, which of course is what we're doing, which is when you're mindful of sights, sounds, tasting, smelling, touching. And in the Buddhist uh, frame, the sixth is the mind. The sixth sense door is the mind. And so thoughts, emotions, moods, reactions also have a feeling quality really interesting to begin to relate to thoughts and mind states and emotions really from that perspective or to begin to begin to not not really from a perspective but to actually begin to see or feel a thought or an emotion or a mood and to really begin to see the feeling quality of it you know whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral so often we get hooked of course in the story you know, with, with emotions and moods, but to actually see just the feeling quality of that emotion or mood. Very interesting. What gets in the way of this kind of direct seeing of feeling, one thing, certainly, is that we place values on feelings. There are basically, in the, the, the way the Buddha describes it, there are essentially three feelings. Not a million, just three. It's fortunate in a way. Uh, there are pleasant feelings. This is really simple, actually. Pleasant feelings, there are unpleasant feelings, and there are neutral, which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Neither pleasant or unpleasant. And it's interesting. To try to find another feeling other than pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's hard because there aren't any. There are just three kinds of feelings. And there, there are pleasant touch sensations. There are neutral touch sensations. And there are unpleasant touch sensations, and you can go through all the, the sense doors. But we, you know, in this culture, I think, and in many cultures, we place values, of course. We impose a value on these feelings, on these experiences. And, of course, the most common value is, you can imagine, that pleasant feelings are considered good, and unpleasant feelings are considered bad. And neutral feelings sometimes are good and sometimes bad. It really <laughs> kind of depends on what the feeling is. I'll go into that in a minute. You know, oftentimes in interviews, people will come in and describe their sitting. And they say, you know, gee, my practice, that last sitting was really a good sitting. It was a really good sitting. So, so, okay, it's a good sitting, describe it. Well, for once, there wasn't a lot of pain in the body. And my mind got calm, and my body really felt good, and my mind felt very peaceful and calm. And I really felt like I was getting the practice. So that's a good sitting. And I said, well, did you have any bad sittings? And somebody said, yeah, I had a really bad sitting this morning. My concentration was really bad. I had a lot of pain in my shoulder. 
I, I was really restless, I couldn't settle down, and that's a bad sitting. And we sit there and we hear that. We don't put a lot of stock into that value of good or bad sitting. Because a lot of times we interpret our experiences on the cushion. You know, we interpret the pleasant often as good. And we interpret the unpleasant, of course, as bad. And then the neutral, like I said, sometimes you, know, you can be sitting there and there's really not much happening. If you have a sitting like that where you're kind of sitting there and there's not a lot of pain and there's definitely not a lot of pleasure and there's not a lot of calm and there's some boredom, maybe some dullness, some sleepiness, and there really aren't any strong sensations, strong feelings going on. And sometimes that feels like a refuge, you know, finally. You know, a little bit of like you know, non-intensity, no pain, uh, no ups and downs. We're just kind of there. And that kind of neutral feeling we can like. And I've had many people come in and tell me that. Nothing's going on, and it feels really good. <laughs> you know, they're kind of tired of all the uh, experiences, and I say, great, you know, good, good, just rest there. But sometimes you can go into different cultures, and the values can totally flip around. And it's really an interesting thing to see how values, how we can interpret pleasure and pain depending on really our context. And a really extreme example of this was my own experience in my, my first three-month retreat. Uh, this was before IMS was here, and, and it was really kind of the first official uh, three-month Vipassana meditation retreat taught in America. And it was in a rented facility, a mon- Catholic monastery up in Maine in 1975. And you know, both the retreatants and the teachers went into this uh, really with a lot of naivete. I mean, we, nobody really had any idea of what we were getting into or what we were doing, including the teachers. Uh, they learned a lot that retreat, too. We weren't, we weren't the only ones to learn a lot. Um, so I had been practicing for a couple of years, and I brought you know, a lot of passion into my practice when I first started, and, and you know, I was really pretty gung-ho. I was a young, young guy, young whippersnapper. And, uh, you know, so I went into this retreat really pretty fierce, and, and um, you know, it's three months, and I had no idea what that was going to be like. And, and nobody had ever done it before, so there wasn't all these people that could kind of tell you or about all the ups and downs you were going to go through or, you know, any of that stuff. You just went in and you just kind of dove in and you were there. And it was a 90-day retreat, which is like, now I think they're 82. This was 90. (laughs) And there was no integration period at the end of this 90 days. The retreat literally ended and everybody left. Uh, So you can imagine, you know, you you worry about what integration is going to be like after seven days. Try 90 days and then get kicked out. Uh, Although several of us literally refused to leave. Uh, there was about six of us who just wouldn't go. And then finally, we, st- we stayed about four extra days. And then finally, the owners of the place came back and said, you've got to leave. Uh, you know, it's, time, it's time to go. Christmas is coming. You know, you've got to go home. <laughs> so we left. <laughs> Not in a particularly cheerful way either. But anyway, sometime during the middle of the retreat, you know, I was also a lot thinner than I am now. And I was kind of getting thinner as the retreat was unfolding. And I, I had made a wooden bench 
They're not that different than the kind of wooden bench that I have here now. Uh, and that's what I was using for sitting. And, you know, when the mind starts getting quiet, and you can imagine sitting day after day, the concentration does get stronger. My sittings were starting to get longer, like, you know, two, three hours sitting. And, you know, I'm sitting on a wooden bench, hard wooden bench, and I'm kind of hanging out there. And then gradually the sensation started creeping in, an extremely unpleasant sensation, right where I'm sitting on this bench. And, you know, I duly noted it, mindful of it, and I continued to sit. And rather than disappear, it started getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And, you know, I kept sitting, and I took it, you know, a lot of the times my main object of meditation was this pain. And I remember, you know, along the way, along those first couple of years before I arrived at the three-month retreat, and I think even during the three-month course, I got this notion that, you know, kind of physical pain and sitting is, goes together naturally, but also it's kind of a good thing because maybe it keeps you awake or you can get more concentrated or, or whatever. The, you know, but somehow being, sitting in pain itself was a virtue. And, and so you can see this value judgment being placed on that. Well, that was a strong value judgment for me because as the retreat unfolded, the pain was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And pretty soon, I was in like agony, like absolute, utter screaming agony. And it would start like around like 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning and then it would just continue through the day. And it, every day it would get just a little bit earlier, the arrival of this uh, experience. And then I can remember towards the end of this period, um, like the moment my butt would hit the bench, <laughs> the very moment I was in excruciating pain. You know, really, it's hard, it's, you know, this, is, this is actually a true story. Um, <laughs> this isn't even an exaggeration. This is it. What's hard to believe, the pain may be hard to believe, but maybe not since you've been sitting for four days. But what's hard to believe is that I continue to sit on that wooden bench without getting a cushion. Think about that. Now, of course, I had the thought, why don't you get a cushion? You're going to be a lot more comfortable. Uh, but I really thought, hey, no, I'm not going to do that. This is a good thing, you know, and this is getting very intense, and I'm staying really wide awake, and, and my concentration feels like it's getting strong, and my practice is getting deep, and... and you know, so I was really focusing on this second foundation of painful feelings and thinking it was really a good feeling in a way. Um, and then this continued for maybe a few weeks. And then finally, finally, I opened the field of awareness up a little bit and took a look at the third foundation, which was my reaction to this experience. And I realized that my mind was screaming. Uh, really screaming in agony at this pain. There was like a lot of contraction uh, towards this particular experience. So even though I was kind of concentrated on it, you know, I wasn't really paying attention to the kind of the suffering that it was bringing me. And that's really the misuse in some ways of concentration um, and why it's so important to go into choiceless awareness because you want to begin to, of course, open to your full, the fullness of your experience. And anyway, after a few weeks, I did finally see the suffering in that attachment. And again, the attachment came out of a view about the experience. The view is actually stronger than the pain, in that, in that sense. Um, I finally did get a cushion. And I put the cushion on the bench, and I sat down. It was like sitting on a cloud. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it was probably one of the most wonderful experiences I, <laughs> I had been in since then. <laughs> It was really pure, pure bliss. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I was like, I was sure that sitting I was going to get enlightened too because I was just so relaxed and so open and just so content. Uh, and needless to say, enlightenment didn't come that sitting, or maybe not since. So, so you have to watch out for these value judgments. How, what we impose on just this very pure, direct experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And so when in your sitting, or, or in your walking, or in your practice, keep an eye on that, the quality of the feeling itself, whether it's unpleasant. Because if we don't pay attention to the feeling, there are consequences. And one consequence is, and it's, it's a big one, is that we suffer. And, and the Buddha was very clear about that. He said, if you don't pay attention to feeling, you're stuck in a very conditioned reaction to it. In other words, generally speaking, the conditioned reaction towards pleasant experiences, of course, is to grasp onto them. A conditioned reaction towards pain is to contract around it, to tighten, to want to push it away, to want it to go away. And that, and, and that reaction of aversion creates suffering. And then with neutral feelings, we generally don't even pay attention to them. We space out. And so those reactions, if they happen unconsciously without us being aware of them, they push us out of the present because when we start grasping onto an experience that's changing, it throws us out of balance. You know, we lose that relaxation. It creates tension. When we push away painful experiences, contract around them, again, it pushes us out of balance. So with the mindfulness of the feeling, mindfulness, the power of mindfulness is that you can bring mindfulness onto a feeling. No matter what the feeling is, it won't judge it. Our thoughts might judge it. But mindfulness doesn't. It responds exactly the same way to something that's painful as pleasant. It just notices it. It knows it for what it is. And one thing it notices is that that particular experience is changing. That pleasant, unpleasant, neutral are really part of life. It's the part of, it's part of nature. It changes. You know, we, can't, you know, we, we, we can't live life without experiencing pleasant experiences, neutral experiences, and painful experiences. It's part of life. It doesn't mean that you have to like painful experiences. You know, I learned that lesson. You don't have to like painful experiences. You don't have to attach and try to reverse the, the perspective. All we have to do is actually just see it for what it is. And then we begin to live life very fully, because then we can meet painful experiences when they come along. And we don't necessarily contract around them. We see them for what they are. In a very direct way, we see them, we feel them, we're very open to pain. You know, if you think meditation is going to lead to not, you know, feeling pain, it doesn't. You feel pain in a very direct way. You know, you're very open. You can see that. You know, when, you, when that knee is hurting, it's not like it goes away just because you've been meditating for four days. In fact, you might even become, in some ways, more sensitive to it, more open to it. But it's the reaction, of course, is, is the area which we can have some, some control over. We can, we can respond to that. Pleasant, too, you know. With pleasant, you know, a lot of times people, when they start meditating, you know, it's, it's sort of like, again, that value judgment. Sometimes pleasant may not seem to be that good. But see, I see practice as a way of, you know, opening to life fully, and that includes pleasure. You know, that includes the pleasant. You know, if we're not mindful of feelings, you know, if we're not connected or present in life, 
we miss so much. You know, we can be in the most beautiful place in the world, in the universe, and we might not have a very good time if we're not present, you know, if we're preoccupied, we're somewhere else. And how often does that happen in our life? We're experiencing pleasant sensations, and we're not there for them. You know, we sit down to a really nice meal, and maybe we notice the first bite, and then immediately some form of discontent or some preoccupation starts arising, and it takes us away from the meal. And then, you know, we've missed all those bites of pleasure. You know, we're not living life fully, we're living somewhere else. So opening to this second foundation is very important. And to begin to hold your experience, begin to see that feeling quality to experience, it's really useful practice. Very useful. And then we begin to move into the third foundation. And in some ways, this foundation, you know, when we move from the concentration practice to the choiceless awareness, a more open attention, this third foundation can really come to the forefront. You know, I mean, it can become a very sort of predominant experience because when we begin to give ourselves, in some ways, permission to open to the experience. You know, that's the thing about concentration. It's a wonderful practice. It's invaluable, you know, the samadhi practice. In, in, definitely we should be continuing to use it, you know, throughout the retreat, like Larry has said. You know, keep using that shamatha practice when you're not feeling, you know, very settled or very calm. You know, just focus on the breath for 10, 15, 20 minutes. Take a whole sitting, do that. That's all, that's all fine. But with the choiceless awareness, of course, you know, what we begin to do is open up to the world of the mind, the thoughts you know, emotions, moods. You know, we begin to allow for that energy to be there. And, you know, instead of seeing it as a distraction, you know, seeing something that's taking us away from the present moment, because maybe we've defined the present moment in the concentration practice as being with the breath, but now we're saying whatever comes up in the present moment, whatever, you know, shows its face, whatever arises in our practice, that's what we begin to take up in the meditation practice. That's what we can apply our mindfulness to this third foundation of mental states, thoughts, emotions, moods. When we don't pay attention to mind states, you know, when we don't bring mindfulness to mind states, it brings a lot of suffering. It brings a lot of suffering. For instance, you know, when you're sitting there and you know, feeling pain or feeling uh, bored, restless, feeling a lot of doubt, you know, those, of course, are all unpleasant mental states. You know, it's not pleasant to be sitting there restless and bored and realizing you have another 30 minutes to sit uh, before you can get out. Uh, that's an unpleasant you know, state of mind. Uh, when we're not mindful of that state of mind, in other words, if we don't pay attention to that, if we don't give it our attention, if it becomes predominant, it, you know, it, it gets stronger. You know, we get lost and caught up in it. We forget to be mindful. We forget to be in the present moment. We get totally caught by those thoughts and emotions. And that's a form of suffering. And all of us know that form because everybody goes through that at some point during their practice. Learning how to be with these different mind states, with mindfulness, with attention, is very empowering. You know, the consequences of not paying attention is tremendous and, and, and can be tremendous suffering. But developing the capacity to actually be mindful of these mind states, of course, is freedom. 
You know, it's freedom from the burden of identifying with those mind states. It allows us to begin to work with these mind states and to begin to see the true nature of all these mind states. You know, we're so identified with these different states of mind that come up that we don't really see them for what they are. We don't see the nature of these mind states. We don't see the fact that they share the same nature as the pounding of the hammers, the chirping of the birds, the touching sensation when you're walking. Mind states are the same. They, they can be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, and they definitely change. And they're also out of your control a lot of the time. They just come up. They arise under certain conditions. So when we can begin to be more mindful of these mind states, you know, then we can begin to use them as a way of becoming more present. You know, mind states don't always have to take us out of the present. In fact, if, we, if we're mindful of them, we're back into the present. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, say you're walking down the road, Barry here, outside. You're walking down the road and you're being mindful. You know, you're doing the practice, walking meditation. You're being aware of touching. And, you know, also there's awareness of seeing, of course. So you're mindful of seeing and pleasant sights, maybe. You know, so you wear pleasant sights. And you're walking along. And then you get to the top of the hill. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes the barking of the dog. Maybe this is the first time you've heard it. And you hear this really loud barking. And immediately, you know, fear, maybe, maybe fear arises, okay? It comes up and body tightens up. You know, the mind starts contracting. You start feeling, you know, kind of powerless or vulnerable all of a sudden. Maybe the mind kicks into, like, you know, let's, let's see what kind of dog this is. How big is it? Is it free? Is it on a leash? Uh, uh, is there an invisible fence? Uh, you know, I've been through this a lot of times, actually, walking in the country, so I know this mind state very well. I've gone through all this. And, uh, and you're, meanwhile, trying to be aware of touching, moving, touching, moving. Well, that's not, to me, that's not really skillful. That's not doing choiceless awareness. Choiceless awareness would be to be aware of the fear, you know, to be aware of it, to be mindful of it, to be awake to the fact that fear is happening. Because if we can be awake to the fact of fear, then we can train ourselves to observe it, to be with it, to become more intimate. And one way of doing that is when you start paying attention, start noticing it in the body. You know, we talk a lot about that first foundation, but the first foundation also often mirrors the third. In other words, fear shows up in the body. And so certainly, you know, if you're walking, and you know, I've had that, I've been startled by that bark, or you know, a dog starts barking, immediately the body doesn't just relax and open up. You know, that's not the experience of fear. It gets tight, and the face gets tight, and you maybe pull your fist tight or something like that, and there's a tightening, and maybe a quickening of your pace. Um, but there's a contraction in the body. So that's one way of beginning to observe fear. That's one way of entering into the present. You know, another is you're aware of the thoughts, all the different kinds of thoughts that are kind of racing all of a sudden. You, know, for one, you go from one moment to feeling kind of peaceful and relaxed, then all of a sudden... Thoughts just start flying. You start imagining what's going to happen and this and that and that and that. You hope there's a doctor in case the dog bites you and all this stuff. And you knew there's a Barry Clinic, so it's not that far away. And, and you know, if you're really afraid, that's how you can go that far. Um, so, you know, choiceless awareness or being mindful of that third foundation gives you a chance to work with fear rather than being subjected to it. Again, you know, we can have ideas about fearlessness, but I don't think I've met anybody that's completely fearless. I'm, in fact, I'm sure I haven't met anybody that's completely fearless. So fearless is a concept. It's an idea. So as long as there's fear, 
it doesn't mean that it prevents us from waking up. We can wake up if we simply pay attention to fear. Because fear has the same nature as the sounds, the chirping of the birds. It changes. It's an unpleasant experience, both physically, mentally, emotionally. But it also changes and passes away. The condition goes away. You could buy the house. The fear subsides. Just like the breath. You know, it arises and passes away. Mindfulness allows us to begin to see that and to develop less reactivity to fear when it arises. Learning how to develop less reactivity to the boredom and restlessness that you confront in sitting. That's an important part of the practice, is to face that boredom, to be with the boredom, to be with the restlessness, to be with the agitation, and sometimes over and over and over again. Because boredom doesn't lead to suffering. It's our relationship to boredom that leads to suffering. And when we judge it or resist it, then we suffer. If we can be mindful of that feeling, in other words, we're just simply with it without judging it, simply with the experience of boredom, exactly as it is, whatever it feels like, we begin to let go of the suffering that we associate with boredom. We're just sitting there and it's boredom. It's that simple. So mindfulness is really the path out of suffering. That's why it's such a useful tool. That's why it empowers us because it allows us to be with our experience exactly as it is. And learning how to be with states of mind, even if they're unpleasant, learning to be less judgmental, less condemning, it's extremely liberating. So much of the path of liberation is really that, being very accepting, getting to know different states of mind when they come up, not reacting to them, not getting overwhelmed by them, developing an inner balance and poise and confidence, and working with mental states, And all of that comes out in a very gradual way with the cultivation of mindfulness. It's the fruit of mindfulness. The fruit of mindfulness is deconditioning. In other words, that gives us a chance to let go of our conditioning. And it's our conditioning, of course, that brings us suffering, our conditioned reactions. I have a feeling Larry is going to talk some about this fourth foundation. It's inevitable. You may not use it as a reference point, but by the end of the retreat, or as we move along, we begin to talk you know, more about wisdom. You know, we begin to talk a little bit about insight you know, and the freedom that can come you know, out of this cultivation of mindfulness, you know, out of this cultivation of this continuity of attention. You know, we begin, as we pay attention to the body, as we begin to pay attention to these painful, unpleasant, neutral feelings, as we begin to pay attention to mind states and we begin to see their changing nature, we begin to feel a part of nature, we overcome that fragmentation and that separation of this is me, this is mine, this is who I am, and everybody else is different. We begin to overcome that because we begin to see that it's just a very natural process that arises and passes away, no different than anything else really has different characteristics. It might be some of these states of mind or the stories may be quite unique to you. We all have different uh, histories, but the, but the universal characteristics are the same. You know, they arise and they pass away, they change. It's part of nature. And so the fourth foundation is beginning to see that. And this seeing comes, again, naturally. It comes out of the intelligence of mindfulness when we begin to see, really, kind of how things work. It's that so when we begin to see how things work, we make our way out of suffering. 
really that simple. If we can begin to see how our bodies and minds work, the kind of laws that they follow, then we begin to suffer much less. A concrete example of this, very concrete example of this, is the body. When we can begin to be mindful of the body, we notice its changing nature. Everybody knows that the body is changing, but as you become more mindful, more connected to your body in the present moment, you see that it's changing all the time. And that changing, you know, sometimes, you know, death can be kind of scary, you know, knowing that that's the inevitable, you know, with the body is that it is going to die. But to begin to see that changing nature and to see and to feel part of nature, you know, and not to react against the changes, but to begin to develop more equanimity and more relaxation around this particular truth. Uh, it's, it's liberation because then, you know, we can start letting go of fear, you know, fear of illness, fear of aging, fear of death. A lot of it's based on our identification with our body. You know, taking the body, somehow, it's, hard, it's, it's a little hard to believe that we do, but taking the body is somehow permanent and solid, that it's me, mine. It's who I am. And that, of course, brings us suffering. So when we begin to see the true nature of the body, we're seeing that fourth foundation. We're seeing the first, the body, but from that insight of fourth, seeing things as they are. We begin to see the larger picture with the fourth foundation. And that, of course, is wisdom, seeing things as they are. And so I see choiceless awareness, you know, this practice of being more open, you know, really as this practice of four foundations of mindfulness. So being in the present means being aware of the body some of the time, perhaps, being aware of the feeling qualities of your mental states or feeling qualities of different sensations when you're eating or showering, being very connected, you know, just learning, seeing, feeling whether a shower is pleasant, unpleasant. You know, it's wonderful to be able to connect to life in this direct way where you actually do an experience and you actually experience it. You're there, and it's very direct. You're open to the feeling quality of the experience. Uh, states of mind, you know, when they, can, when they be, can become a vehicle for opening, when they can become a vehicle for making a connection to the way things are, rather than a way of getting away or a way of creating more suffering for us, but they actually become a door to liberation when we're mindful. And so this choiceless awareness, this open practice, is really... T- Simply seeing one of these four foundations or all of the four foundations. So staying connected to the body, feelings when they rise. Now if states of mind come up, giving our full attention to it, passes away, changes, come back to rest in the body, perhaps something else is coming up. So staying very connected to all of that. It's living in the present. Okay, so maybe we could sit for a couple minutes. It depends. <laughs> it really depends on how personal it is. <laughs> That's true. No, I, I yes. <laughs> yeah. it, it's just a memory I haven't had in many, many, many years. You know this special retreat that Michael was on when he said the, the, the very first Vipassana retreat in uh, 
probably in North America or maybe even the West, three months, yeah. the three-month retreat. <laughs> at the time, I was living at a Zen center. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I was sort of, sort of in charge of it uh, when the teacher wasn't there, who was a Korean Zen master. And uh, I was there, some of you know John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, he was uh, visiting that day. We were, he was also a member of the center. And we were talking, suddenly there's a knock on the door. There was a free room, one room. And uh, this person uh, is at the other end of the door, extremely thin. <laughs> and his eyes were like out here. <laughs> and he was, he was very young, uh, with eyes out here and a very thin body. And uh, the question was, and he said, do you guys have a, a spare room? Because I'm looking for a place to... And uh, Johnny looked at me and I looked at him. The question was, do we call 911 and have, <laughs> you know, and have him committed? Or do we consider and let him move in? So we kind of hashed it around privately, you know, like, uh, he looks strange, you know, he said, uh, you know... <laughs> Yeah, but he's been sitting for three months, you know. He's like, so fortunately, we were we didn't call nine one one, and uh, Michael moved in, and we've been friends ever since. It's not so bad, <laughs> but you can see how long, how far he's traveled. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings be peaceful. And may all beings, including Larry Rosenberg, be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.